Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast for Hope City Church. We pray the word of God leaves you encouraged and hopeful today. Open with me to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. We are in the third week of our series in the book of Psalms, and we have finally made it to Psalm chapter (laughs) 1. That would be funny if it wasn't true. (laughs) Psalm chapter (laughs) 1. Let me read the whole thing, then we'll pray and we'll dive right in. Psalm chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Father, we need you to come now and open up your word to us, to open up our hearts to your word, to take the blinders off of our eyes and all the ways that Um, we may need to be stirred and um, challenged, encouraged, or even corrected, Lord. Come now by your Holy Spirit and enlighten us and speak to us and stir us and make us more like your son, Jesus Christ, as we open up your living and powerful word. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we've got a lot of ground to cover. I'm going to try to not be like that super fast talker guy that I normally like to. So I, I've got 80 minutes of message and, you know, maybe half an hour here to try to kind of get it to you, okay? Uh, important to know, the first two songs, I, I'm sure plenty of people disagree with this, but literally every Bible commentator and scholar that I've read in preparation for this series agrees that Psalm 1 and 2 are meant to be foundational to the entire book of Psalms. So so we're not going to actually teach through all the Psalms. There's 150 Psalms. We spent a year and six chapters of Ephesians. I'm not going to take you through verse by verse, 150 chapters in the Psalms, uh, but we are going to teach the first two Psalms. So we're going to do Psalm 1 this week, Psalm 2 next week, and the reason for that is because they are foundational to the rest of the book. And so what I want to do is just kind of get... Um, in our hearts, just the foundation that I believe the Holy Spirit intends for us to have going into the book and just to stir us as we read the rest of the Psalms in our private devotion or together as families and family devotion time. Um, I want us to have the foundation that the Holy Spirit wanted us to have in Psalm chapter 1 and Psalm 2. And so that's where we're going today and next Sunday, Psalm 1 and 2. I can't wait to get to next week, but I'm excited about where we're at this morning because this Psalm is just powerful. Six verses, but they will explode and change the direction of your life if you let them. Um, So, the Psalms, remember in our two weeks of foundation stuff, (laughs) the Psalms are poetry. 
okay, should be read that way, but they're also poetry that's intended to instruct us. It's intended to teach us. And so not all poetry makes a claim to teach or instruct. A lot of poetry is just meant to inspire, and the Psalms certainly are meant to do that. They're meant to inspire and capture our hearts, not just our heads, okay? But they're also meant to instruct us. And so what is the instruction here in Psalm 1? Psalm 1 might be filed under wisdom psalms. So there's instruction here. There's wisdom to be gained from Psalm 1, and it's foundational to the rest of the book and foundational to our Christian walk and lives. What's the instruction here? It's right there in verse 1. Blessed is the man who dot, 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 right? And then it tells us a bunch of stuff. The instruction is how to live a life that is blessed, how to be blessed. The word blessed there literally means happy. So we want to talk about the pursuit of happiness, right? So it's right here. It's blessed is the one who does not do certain things and does other things. Blessed is also how to live a blessed life. And one of the things, one of the first things I feel like we're supposed to notice here, and it's pretty, it jumps out at you, is this obvious contrast between what this psalm calls the righteous and the wicked. There's a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. I mean, if you just look, so it talks in verse 3 about how the righteous is, it's like a tree planted by streams of water, verse 4, but the wicked are not so. There's a contrast there between the blessed man, the righteous man, and the wicked. Uh, verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so there's a contrast intentionally being drawn in these six verses between the righteous and the wicked. But I want to be very, very careful here because I've made this mistake, and it would be really easy to make this mistake, of thinking that what this psalm is saying is if you want to live a blessed life, be this and don't be that. It's not actually saying that. I've, I've thought that for a long, long time. It's not just saying be righteous and don't be wicked. Be good and don't be bad and you'll have a blessed life. I think it's saying something more specific and nuanced and, and kind of pointed than that. I think it's saying this. I think it's saying pay attention to your influences and where they're leading you. Pay attention to your influences, to what and who is influencing you, and where that road is leading. The contrast really isn't just between the righteous and the wicked, but between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. We see it there in verse 6. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So the contrast is between two ways. There's two ways of life. If you will, there's two roads set before us. The word way means path or road. One way that leads to blessing and the other we'll see that leads to destruction. It really is that simple. And so we wanna, we wanna get clever with the word. And, and the Psalms just go right at the, at the beginning of the Psalms. They come out of the gate and they say, listen, there's two roads in life. There's one road, there's a way, there's a path that leads to blessing. And there's a road, there's a way, there's a path that leads to destruction. And it's very, very important to pay attention to your influences, what and who is influencing you, which road are you on, where is this headed? And, um, and I'm going to show you that a little bit more clear here. The contrast is actually drawn by showing us that the way to blessing is by avoiding the one path and by taking the other. So it says here that he, the blessed man, avoids the path of the wicked and instead follows the way of the righteous. So what I want to do, what we're going to do this morning 
So we're going to take a look at these two paths, these two roads, these two ways. Okay, the way of the wicked and where that leads, the way of the righteous and where that leads. And then ultimately what we need to do, the most important part, is get to how does this psalm ultimately lead us to Jesus? So I believe that all scripture is ultimately about Jesus. And that though we're in the Old Testament book of the Psalms, this psalm is intended to lead us to Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about how this psalm does that. Okay, so let's look at the way of the wicked first. Verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And so it's describing the blessed person, but it does so first in the negative. That is, by what the blessed person does not do. Right? So... He does not submit to the influence of the wicked. Three things in particular. If you have your notes, here they are. Number one, the blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. So it says, blessed is a man, verse one, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Let me get something out of the way real quick. Because when I say the word wicked... Some of you already have like maybe, maybe struggling with this because it's real easy to do. When I say wicked, the word wicked here does not mean the most evil and sinister being you can imagine. That's, that's not what it means. And if we think that, then we think, oh, okay, but, the, but you know, this person's nice and friendly and good and they're, they're great and so they're not wicked. Say so when, when this says the counsel of the wicked, the word wicked doesn't mean the most evil being you can possibly conjure up in your brain. It simply means ungodly. That is, anyone who is not submitted to and following after God. So this means it could be your sweet old grandma. Your sweet old grandma, if she is not submitted to and following God, if she is not in relationship with God, she would fall under the definition of this verse, the wicked or the ungodly. Okay? So we, it's very important to get that in our minds. We think, oh, I don't follow the counsel of the wicked. Of course I don't do that. And it's like, hey, maybe you're following the counsel of somebody who's really sweet, nice, and wonderful, but they're living in un, non-submitted to God. They're ungodly. And so, so the, the admonition here is that the blessed person doesn't follow the advice, doesn't take the counsel or the consultation or listen to the strategies and plans and ways of the ungodly. We're going to see a progression here in the next, in this verse. There's a progression, there's a couple progressions, but... The first step toward destruction is listening to the counsel of the ungodly. I, I really, at least here in this psalm, it shows us the first step there is listening to the counsel, the advice. We begin to seek out the advice of those who aren't following Jesus. Not that the world doesn't have anything to offer us in terms of wisdom or, or um, insight, but that we begin to order our lives based on ungodly counsel. We begin to seek the advice of those who aren't following Jesus. We listen to what scripture calls the wisdom of the world. And we begin to accept as truth the false gospels of an ungodly culture. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 14 verse 12 tells us there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is death. 
And so we've all had these conversations with people, again, who are not, not that we're perfect, but that we have a conversation with people who are not in any kind of relationship with God, not following him, don't care to follow him, not seeking after him. And there's a way that seems right. There's a wisdom of the world. There's a way that just seems like, I can't even believe that you Christians would believe that because this just is obvious truth. This is just the way. And scripture says the end of that way is death. It seems, it's not that you're choosing knowingly sometimes the wrong, it's that, it's that you think it's right. There's a way that seems right. And so the question right up front is whose counsel do you seek? Whose counsel, what counsel are you listening to and trusting in and ordering your life around? Who are you listening to? The blessed person does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Second, the blessed person does not stand in the way of sinners. That's verse one. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. The word way here also means manner. And so the blessed person doesn't live in the manner of living that, that the ungodly world lives in. I know, listen, I'm, I'm going to sound like an old Southern Baptist preacher this morning, but I'm just preaching you straight from this song, okay? This is something that the Holy Spirit wants us to know, all right? The blessed person does not live like the rest of the world. They, they have a different manner of living. And now, again, we start to see the first progression. So first, we're listening to the counsel of the wicked, and then we begin to live like the ungodly. We start to adopt the same manner of living. We start to justify little sins here and there and excuse our lack of devotion to God. And we cry legalism if somebody else says something to us about that. We go, oh, you're being legalistic. And listen, let me just say this. I, I, I really think, I know this is heavy, but I really think one of the reasons the world struggles to believe the gospel we preach is because they haven't seen much in the way of genuine gospel transformation in the lives of Christians. True. I, just, I just really think that's true. Because the church, especially in Western culture, tends to live and look just like the rest of the world. We live no differently, and so we tell people they need Jesus, and they go, why? Your life is just like mine. You get high and sleep around just like I do. You're just as stressed as I am. You don't have any more self-control than I do. You're just as unforgiving as me. You haven't changed or been transformed in any discernible way. You have no more peace or no more hope or no more joy than I do. Why do I need what you have? Right. Our lives should be different different. No, we're not perfect. We're not going to walk. We're going to sin. We fall short all the time. And if we say we have no sin, we're liars. That's what scripture says. But there, right? So there's a way that we should live though. That's what this is saying. We should live differently from the rest of the world. It's not even controversial in the scriptures. It's all over the scriptures. It's assumed by the scriptures and repeated over and over by the scriptures that the people of God live different from the people of the world. The people of God live differently. There's a way that the ungodly lives, and Christians would have nothing to do with that manner of life, that way. We're called to be separate. 2 Corinthians 6 says, come out from them and be separate. Yeah. I'm not telling you, now we're going to get to this later, but I am, don't misunderstand me, because I'm not telling you to just go out and try harder to live a better life so that you can earn 
right standing with God or salvation. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that when you're in right standing with God, he will empower you to live differently. And so the world doesn't believe us because we say we have the Holy Spirit of the living God inside of us and we look no different and live no different than the rest of the world. And they go, really? The living God, a Holy Spirit lives in you? The blessed person does not live like the ungodly. They have a different manner of living. Third, okay, so we're talking about the way of the wicked, and, it, and it's contrasted. So the blessed person avoids this, doesn't do this, doesn't listen to the counsel of the wicked, okay? Doesn't, doesn't walk in the way of, sorry, stand in the way of sinners. And third, does not sit in the seat of scoffers. That's verse one. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, and here it is, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. What does it mean to scoff? Simply, to scoff means to mock, to ridicule, to make fun of. So again, let's follow this progression. First, we're accepting the counsel of the ungodly. That sounds right. That sounds good to me. Now I begin to live like the ungodly, and then you reach a point where you've begun to join the ungodly and mocking those who seek to live righteous lives. Right? The kids are having more fun than we are. Okay? So we listen to the counsel of the wicked, and then we begin to live like the ungodly. We justify here and there. I'm just trying to be like the world, man, like become like them to reach them. Yeah, right. Are you reaching them or are they reaching you? Right? And then we begin to mock those who stand for righteousness. It's, it's becoming so well-adjusted to sin and so desensitized to the godlessness of the present age that we not only engage in sinful living and applaud others for living sinful lives, we now actually begin to mock and ridicule those who try to live godly lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this psalm says that the blessed person has nothing to do with mocking the righteous. The blessed person does not sit in the seat of scoffers. I have been so, uh, first of all, I've been guilty of it and had to repent. And then now I've just reached this point where I'm so disheartened and really disgusted by the, um, just the spirit, this critical spirit within the church of Christians who feel like it's their job to down talk the church. To talk down other Christians and believers and go, uh, oh, okay, you're so whatever. And to begin to mock within Christians. Our unity is supposed to lead people to Christ. We have so much division. Okay, so there's this progression of listening to counsel, living like the ungodly, and now we're mocking those who try, seek to live godly lives. But there's a second progression here, and I want you to see it, okay? So if you flip back through one, two, and three, here's the progression. Walks, stands, sits. Do you see it? Blessed is a man who walks, not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits. We've gone from walking to standing to sitting. All movement and progression has ceased. 
We're no longer progressing or even trying to progress in, in spiritual growth, but we are sitting down, stuck, entrenched in unrighteousness. All progress has been lost. Do you see how gradual and subtle that is? It doesn't say, go from running to sitting. Right? That would be pretty abrupt. To run and then go from immediately from running, full-on sprint to sitting. That, uh, that would get our attention. Right? But walking to standing to sitting, it's very gradual. It's very subtle. C.S. Lewis said this, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts, it's gradual. It's gradual. It's just a little here and a little there. And if all of this seems a bit too dramatic, oh, the safest way to hell, you're being so dramatic. If that seems too dramatic for us, maybe we've forgotten what the rest of this psalm says about the devastating consequences of following the way of the wicked. Yeah. Okay, so let's look at them. What are the consequences of following the way of the wicked? Where does that road lead? Where does the path of the wicked lead? Number one, leads to judgment. Verse five, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Let me, let me just say this, okay? There is coming a day of judgment. I know, I know that's not popular to preach anymore. I know that. But the reality is, all of our attempts to ignore it or revise the biblical teaching about it do nothing to actually stop it from coming. It's coming. Whether we like it and accept it and embrace it or not, it's actually coming. It's a matter of truth. We don't have to like it. We have to heed the warning. And God is gracious to warn us. It's, it's coming. And the author of this psalm, by the Holy Spirit, wants you to be able to stand on the day of judgment. He says, but the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment. So this psalm wants us to know that there is coming a day of judgment and those who follow the way of the wicked will not be able to stand. You may be able to stand today in this culture in the way of the wicked, but on that day you will not be able to stand if you follow and walk in the way of the wicked. That's heavy. That's important though. Yeah. It's important to know the wicked will not stand and just so the first Consequence, major consequence. The others are just offshoots of this one consequence. Is ultimate judgment. Verse five. Number two, separation. <clears throat> we see it there also in verse five. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. What is the congregation of the righteous? The congregation of righteous people, or people who have been made righteous. The it's, it's the family of God. It's the true children of God. It's the saved. It's the church. The congregation of the righteous is the church. And it says, sinners will not be able to stand in the congregation of the righteous. Today, in our, in our congregations that meet wherever on Sundays or Saturdays or whatever given day we choose to meet, okay, we gather together in congregations and our congregations today are filled with believers and unbelievers, righteous and unrighteous, right? 
It says the wheat grows, the tares grow among the wheat. There's wheat and tares, and sometimes we don't know. Is somebody really wheat or are they a tear? Right? And it says God will figure that out at the end of the age when, he, when, when it's time to clear his threshing floor, right? So in our congregations today, there's righteous and unrighteous. It says, but in that final day, the sinners will not be able to stand in the congregation of the righteous. One day the wicked will be cut off, not, listen to this, not just from God, but also from the family of God. One of the joys of eternity in heaven is that God is not just, yes, God is calling us to himself in a personal relationship, but he's also called us into the family of God. If I am a child of God and you are a child of God, that makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. That means we are family. So I'm not just saved into a vertical one-on-one relationship with God, but saved into the family of God, of which every true believer on the face of this earth is part of. But it says part of the the penalty of the the consequence of walking in the way of the wicked is that I face judgment and I'm separated, cut off from the congregation of the righteous. God's making a family. Third, destruction. Verse six says, the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked will perish will perish. And so here's part of what that means. Not only will the wicked perish, obviously there's destruction there, but it says the entire way of the wicked will perish. Did you see that? It doesn't just say the wicked will perish. It says the way of the wicked will perish. So listen, nowadays today, I feel it every day. I feel it all the time. We still have to contend with our flesh, right? I fight that. I wake up and by the power of the gospel and the grace of God, have to go, Lord, empower me to walk in in holiness today, be more like Jesus Christ. Empower me to repent of this sin and that mindset and this attitude and this action. And I have to do it all the time because we contend with the flesh and we contend with the ungodly temptations and influence of the way of the wicked and the world around us, right? Scripture says, Paul Paul writes this in Romans. He says, I do the things I don't want to do and the things I don't want to do, I do. Who will rescue me from this body of death? He says, I I praise God through Jesus Christ. One day, the entire way of the wicked will perish and we will no longer fight and wrestle with Mm. the temptations of the ungodly way of the Verse four. After telling us in verse three that the Blessed man is fruitful. Verse four says, but the wicked are not. But they are like chaff that the wind drives away. And I know that that's a perfect analogy to use because we're all farmers. And we all understand. I'm just kidding. Okay? So what is chaff? Like what is chaff? Okay, first of all, let me give you the, 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 the definition. Chaff is like the husks or skins of like corn or like wheat or other seed that is separated by winnowing or threshing, okay, a process of like winnowing or threshing. So they separate the husks or the skins from corn. Or think of like separating the, the husk of corn, and that is trash, and the corn is the edible, usable fruit, right? So it says believers, the blessed man is like a tree, but the, but the unrighteous, the wicked, they're not. They're like the chaff. A, modern, a, a good modern example might be like think of a peanut, right? So you have like a peanut. You got a shell. You crack that shell. But it's actually not the shell's not the chaff, right? Shell goes away, 
But then what do you still have to do, right? You still have to kind of rub the peanut and get that little skin, that little film off. That little skin, that's the chaff. That's the chaff. So I want you to get the dramatic contrast that this psalm wants us to have. A fruit-bearing tree or chaff. It says that the wicked are like chaff that is blown away. Blown away. John the Baptist used this analogy when he spoke of the coming day of judgment. It's heavy imagery, but it's in the scriptures, so we need to pay attention to it. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, that is Jesus, he's mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's what scripture says, New Testament scripture, about chaff. And Psalm 1 tells us that the way of the wicked, following the way of the wicked, becoming the wicked, living in wickedness, it says you're like chaff. That's horrible. But that is the horrific end of those who follow the way of the wicked. And so the blessed man does not give himself over to the influence of the ungodly, doesn't listen to the counsel of the ungodly, doesn't walk in the way of the ungodly, certainly doesn't mock the godly, avoids that entire way of life, does not give himself over to the influences of the wicked. Now, that doesn't mean we retreat into a Christian bubble, going only to Christian places and doing only Christian things, drinking Christian coffee with our Christian T-shirts on. While we work out, after working out at our Christian gym, doesn't mean we avoid the world. Paul says that. What do you do? I'm not talking about avoiding people in the world. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world to do that. It means that we don't follow the counsel of the world. We don't walk in the wisdom of the world or the way of the world. And we certainly don't mock the righteous. The blessed man avoids the entire way of the wicked. Now, i got to go through this last part really much quicker, okay? Section B. Way of the righteous. And we still got section C, so I better put the pedal to the metal, okay? The way of the righteous. After contrasting this in verse 1, I'm going to read verse 1 and then verse 2 again because we're meant to see the contrast. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So where first the blessed man was described negatively by what he doesn't do, doesn't listen to the counsel of the wicked, doesn't walk in the way of the wicked, doesn't mock the righteous, right? Now he's described positively, that is by what he does do, okay? Instead of being led and influenced and shaped by the way of the wicked, he is influenced and shaped by the word of God. And I was just kind of thinking about this a lot this week. I just was realizing like, it's just so apparent that so many Christians are more influenced by other things than we are by the word of God. Yeah. And I don't even mean always bad things, though they are bad if they influence us away from the word of God, but they may not appear bad. So it'd be obvious to be, that it'd be bad to be shaped by whatever, I don't know, the satanic Bible or whatever. You know, that's bad. That's obvious wicked. Okay. But I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about like if your worldview is more shaped by conservative political news sources than it is by the word of God or by liberal political news sources than it is by the word of God, there's a problem. 
on either side. If your worldview is more shaped by gossip and entertainment magazines or TV shows or what music you're listening to, music will get into your heart without your permission. If you're more influenced by, by TV shows and music and culture and your hipster liberal arts professor than you are by the word of God, many Christians are. I'm just saying, many Christians are. We're more shaped and more influenced by those things than we are by the word of God. Right. We feed on these things and they shape us and they form our, our worldview. Everybody has a worldview. And I can't tell you, I know tons of people like this, and I'm not on a pedestal judging anybody down. I'm saying I've been this, and I, I continue, God has to continue to correct me in different areas. Just in the last couple of weeks, God was like, hey, on this issue, your worldview has been more shaped by something else than by the word of God. Just in the last couple of weeks, God's like, hey, that mindset's got to go. That's of the world. And I thought it was good. God drew me back into his word. What does my word say about that? But I know tons of people like this. I mean, tons. In the law of the Lord. So the law just it means Torah, instruction, teaching. Uh, it's scripture. It's the word of God. So that's where we're getting that, okay? So it says he delights in the word of God, in the law of the Lord. Now listen to that. Pay attention. We're going to camp out here for just a second, okay? We need to. The word delight is very important. Delights in. Delight means what you think it means. It means pleasure, takes pleasure in, or desires. This is an instinctive heart response of seeing the beauty and value of someone or something. Seeing the beauty of my wife and I delight in her. I see the beauty of a painting, I delight in it. I, I hear a song that I enjoy, I delight in it. As I see the beauty or value or greatness of something and I take delight in it. So this is not, when it's talking about the word of God, it says delight in the word of God. This is not just, okay, I'll read it begrudgingly. Or even, I'll read it obediently. That's good. Even better, I'll read it delightfully. I delight in the word of God. I hope you know that we can't fabricate that. We just can't try harder to feel delight. You know that, right? Like we can't just, oh, I, oh hang on a second. Because then we make like delighting in the word of God a work. We go, oh, okay, how do I make myself delight in the word of God? Like it's a weird command to delight in something. Command you to delight in that wall. Ah, make myself delight in that wall. Right? Delight's kind of an instinctive heart response to seeing the beauty and value of something. So what we need to do is pray that God would help us to see the beauty and value and worth of his word. So that our instinctive heart response would be delight. We can't fake that or force it. Ask yourself, when was the last time I felt that way about the word of God? Someone shares a verse or I heard the word being preached or I read it or I saw it and my response was delight in the word of God. Here's why it's important. Because we want to make Christianity about what we do or don't do. Right? Check off the list of good things to do. Avoid the list of bad things to do, right? And the problem is, it's not just about what we do. It's about what we desire. It's about what we delight in. 
Christianity is not just adhering to a list of do's and don'ts. It is a radical transformation of our heart and a reordering of all of our desires over a lifetime. I will give you a new heart. I will take out your heart of stone and I will give you a new heart with new desires. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That means a couple things. Delight in the Lord, see the beauty and value of him and delight in him and he will reorder your desires and then give you those desires. Delight in the Lord and he will give you new desires and then give you those desires. Does that make sense? So Christianity is not just about adhering to a list of do's and don'ts. It's a transformation of heart and a reordering of our desires. We have a new heart and new desires. And that instinctively means that what I love begins to inform what I hate. You who love the Lord hate evil. Hate it first in your own heart. Anytime I see the wickedness in me, listen, what we love to do is we start to love the Lord and hate the evil in other people's lives. Now we should hate evil anywhere we see it. But we want to get on our little pulpits and we want to stand up and we want to say, oh, I love the Lord now and you need to blah, 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 blah. Okay, there's a place for that. There's time for that. Obviously scripture's that. But our first, the first work of the Holy Spirit is always internal transformation. That I, here's the deal. So it's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that you struggle with sin. How do you feel about the sin in your life? How do you feel? Of course we desire things that are ungodly. That's part of fighting with the flesh. But how do you ultimately feel? Are you in attention? Can you say like Paul, like, oh, the things I don't want to do, I do those. Do you hate the sin you find in your own heart? When God reveals to you an area of sinfulness in you, do you hate it? And you go, Lord, change me. I want to overcome this. I want to get past this. Help me. Empower me by your Holy Spirit because I can't do it on my own. And I don't like this in me. I don't like this pride in me. I don't like this lust in me. I don't like this anger in me. I don't like this whatever God is showing me in my flesh. I don't like it. I hate it. Because that's the primary difference between a believer and a non-believer. When the Holy Spirit comes up and takes residence in you, your desires change and you begin to love the things that please the Lord and hate the things that dishonor him. Adam and Eve's sin was not simply that they fractured a law or disobeyed God. They did, and that is a very important part of it. It's why they disobeyed. Because they desired and sought delight in something contrary to his word, contrary to his command to them. He said he wanted to give us life and life abundantly. And he tells them, eat of all the trees in the garden. Just don't eat this one. Because in the day that you did it, God knew something would happen to them. A knowledge of evil would come to them. And it would not be beneficial for them. It would be devastating for them. And yet they said, "Mm, maybe God's holding out on us. Maybe there's delight and desires to be found outside of God's command that will bring joy into my life. And devastation ensued. It was their desires that led them to sin. So it wasn't just a fracturing of a law. It was why. So do you see that? Listen, until we get this, we'll never know why we sin. We'll just keep struggling with sin, never knowing why. Just trying to try harder to be good and try harder to not be bad. We'll just keep behavior modification. We're just going to keep trying that. We're going to keep failing because we got this sinful flesh that we have to deal with. And we're going to keep being disappointed. And eventually, maybe some people will just give up and go, screw it, I can't do it. You know, let me just give myself over to this this way. Because we're fighting the symptoms and not the root. We're cleaning the spider webs and never killing the spider. It's at the point of desire. God, help me to see you for who you are so that my heart would instinctively respond with delight 
Help me to see your word for what it is and not as a, as a barrier to good, but as a protection against something that will harm me. Help me to see it the right way and delight in the commands of God yes. because they're intended for my good and not for my harm. It's a reordering of our desires. Desire is very, very, very important. Listen, we walk in the counsel of the wicked because we ultimately desire the counsel of the wicked. It's a desire issue. We want to be told that we're cool how we are. We want to be told and petted and told, that's okay, go ahead, give yourself over to that. So we seek out counselors who will tell us what our itching ears want to hear. We go, I sought counsel. I sought counsel on this one. I got a lot of advice. What counsel are you seeking? Jackie Hill Perry, this poet, uh, says this great quote. I think I have it in your notes. I hope I do. She's an amazing poet. Uh, she said this, discerning lies from truth is as much about knowledge as it is affection. And then she explains that. You will reject truth if you love lies. Blaise Pascal, I don't think this one is in your notes, Blaise Pascal once said, truth is so obscured nowadays and lies so well established that unless we love the truth, we shall never recognize it. So the blessed person engages with the word of God because they delight in God and in his word. Second, so first was he delights in the law of the Lord. Second, he meditates on the law day and night. Let me show you in verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, on the word of God, he meditates day and night. If delight is instinctive response, meditation is effort. Maybe delightful effort, but still effort, okay? What is it to meditate? Very, very, very simply, so the world's view of meditation is to clear your mind of all things. Don't think anything. Just empty your mind, as if that were even entirely possible. Just be empty-minded. That's the world's idea of meditation, Eastern meditation. The biblical concept of meditation is to fill your mind with the Word of God. To linger on and obsess on and chew on the Word of God. That's Biblical meditation. And so to meditate is to linger over a portion of scripture. I mean, when I first got saved, I was like plowing through books of the Bible. And I remember one day, I literally read like three books of the Bible. Like I was just, oh, I'm so eating up the word. I loved it. And it was great stuff. And God just kind of arrested me one day and was like, was like shut the book. And I was like, okay. All right, we're going to spend some time here. It was good. I felt like God was like really speaking to me. And it was like, what did you just read? And I couldn't pull up one thing from memory of like, I was like, oh, I think I read a little bit about, I had plowed through it so fast, I was kind of patting myself on the back about how much, the volume of scripture that I was consuming that day. Yeah. And I just felt like God was like, you'd be better off getting one verse, homie. One verse. He didn't say homie, but that was my little interpretation <laughs> how he said, right? You'd be better off getting one verse and soaking on it and meditating on it and thinking about it and then going out and living it. You'd be far better off doing that than reading volumes of scripture that you don't get and you don't apply. So to meditate is to slow down. Pause. You don't have to get to the entire book of Hebrews this morning. You may only get through one verse. You may only get stuck on one word or one phrase because the Holy Spirit wants to say something to you today. 
you ever been reading the scripture if you've been a Christian for any length of time and you read you get to the story of Noah or you get to whatever and you just kind of skim read it because I've read this a million times. I know what's here. There's more. There's more there. It goes as deep as you're willing to go. So we want volume. God wants quality. Okay? He says stop, pause, meditate, linger over a verse or even a single word. Soak it in, chew on it, think about it, repeat it, talk about it. Don't rush away too soon. The word meditate actually uh, also means to mutter or to speak. So speak the word of God to yourself. It doesn't matter if you look like a crazy person. Go out, get your, your work break. Okay, go, go outside, man. Read a verse and then just commit it to memory. Just walk around and just, just speak it. Speak it and speak it and speak it. Go back to it and look at it again and speak it until it's in your heart. We hide the word of God in our hearts. What does the psalm say? I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. How do we hide the word in our heart? We can't do it if we're just skim reading. We do it by meditating on the word of God. Joshua chapter 1 verse 8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your what? From your mouth. But you shall meditate on it day and night. Meditation and your mouth are connected. What are you speaking? It says, meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. This is a great way to memorize scripture and hide the word in your heart. And it says, meditates on it day and night. So you go, okay, listen, it would be progress for most believers to get to where we had a daily time with the Lord meditation. This isn't even just daily. He says all day. He doesn't say just have your one kind of devotion time. That's good. If you're not there, let's try to get there, okay? Not out of legalism, out of delight, okay? But get to where we have time with the Lord every single day. But this is like going beyond that. So it's not just read my Bible in the morning. Oh, I've done it daily. He says do it day and night and night and day and midday and your breaks and, and everything. Hide the word of God in your heart. You may be on that same verse for two weeks. You may be in the same book for a year. Better that than reading the thing 17 times and not doing it. This is a constant steady life of being saturated in the word of God. It's abiding in the word and letting the word of God abide in you. What are the rewards for following the way of the righteous? And I gotta land this sucker quick. What are the rewards of following this way? We've seen the destruction of following the way of the wicked. What is the reward of meditating and delighting in the word of God? Where does this road lead? Number one, obviously, it leads to blessing. We've been talking about it this whole time, so I don't have to spend much time on it. Blessed is the man who, what? Delights in and meditates day and night on the word of God. So there's blessing attached to this blessing notice it doesn't say now this is cool to have if you have it 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 may be bad for some people i don't know but it doesn't say blessed is the man who has a fat bank account or blessed is a man who has good looks or blessed is a man who has an amazing charisma and ability to connect no it says blessing comes from delighting in and meditating on the word of god number two so blessing number two is fruitfulness. This is verse three. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers like a tree. Okay, humor me for just a second and I want you to picture, to imagine a tree in a desert, in the middle of a desert, a barren desert, during 
the seventh year of an intense drought. Picture the cracked earth around that leafless, fruitless, gray and dying tree. And now picture a tree planted by streams of water, green and flourishing and filled with fruit. That is the visual that's being given to us here in verse three. It says, those who meditate on the word of God day and night and delight in the word of God will be like a tree that is planted by streams of water. To be planted by streams of water as a tree is to have a never-ending stream of life-giving nourishment and refreshment. And the picture is here is of the life of God flowing to us through the word of God. So it says, sick. Sink your roots into the word of God and let it be like being planted next to a stream of water that just constantly feeds you and causes you to flourish and produce fruit. It's the life of God flowing to us through the word of God. So are you rooted in the scripture? Have you sent out your roots and are feeding on the nutrient-rich soil of God's word? Because that's how you become spiritually fruitful. It says, bears fruit. What is, what is the next word? Yields its fruit in its season. So I, I want you to think of the time involved here. In its season. Think of the time it takes for a tree to bear fruit to go from seed to fruitful tree. So the word of God is like a seed. The person who meditates on the word of God will be like a tree planted by streams of living water, but think of the time that's involved in that, okay? It takes time for a seed that's planted to crack open and send out roots, time for the nourishment from that root system to cause growth, <laughs> cracks the surface, and then eventually it starts to cause foliage, and over time, it produces fruit. It's time. This is not an overnight process or a quick fix. There is no such thing as instant fruitfulness, which is really hard to accept in our drive-through microwave culture, right? I don't mean, like, we want it all and we want it now. But godly fruit-bearing doesn't work like that. This psalm says it happens in its season, in its season. James chapter five, verse seven says, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. You see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth? Waits, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. So what is the scripture saying? It's saying send out roots into the soil of God's word and be patient and let it over time. It says, don't uproot from the soil of God's word because it's not working quick enough for you. Sit down roots and let it nourish you and produce growth and life so that you will bear fruit in its season. It says, and its leaf does not wither. That means it's always alive and always thriving. William McDonald says that to have leaves that don't wither is to have a spiritual life that is, quote, not subject to cyclical changes, but is characterized by a continuous inner renewal. D.L. Moody said it a little bit more simply. He said, all the Lord's trees are evergreen. That means that even though the trees 
experience the seasons that don't cease to be green. So even though my physical life is subject to the changing of seasons and circumstances, my spiritual life doesn't have to be. I don't have to be stripped of spiritual vitality because this is a hard season. Because the storm came. Because the winds blow and beat on the house. I don't have to lose my spiritual vitality. I can be evergreen. Circumstances may suck. But I can be spiritually thriving still and strong and trusting in the Lord and rooted in God's word and bearing fruit in its season. So the way of the righteous leads to blessing, fruitfulness, and third, leads to prosperity. Verse three. It's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Let me say this. God wants us to prosper. A robust, fully orbed, comprehensive biblical prosperity. God desires, Scripture says, that we would prosper in all things, even as our soul prospers. He wants us to be blessed and fruitful and prosperous. Now, this is not a blanket promise that we'll never have negative experiences. Remember, the Psalms are filled with laments. God, life just smacked me hard. Help. But it is the promise and expectation of Psalm 1 that the righteous will ultimately experience blessing and fruitfulness and prosperity. That's why we have Psalm 1. How to avoid a life of destruction and live a life that is blessed and fruitful and prosperous. That's what this psalm is given to us for. And so being rooted in the word and delighting in it and meditating on it day and night to do it will ultimately lead to a blessed life. The way of the righteous leads to blessing, fruitfulness, and prosperity. And this is the way that the Lord wants to lead you in. Look at verse six. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. What does that mean? What does it mean that the Lord knows the way of the righteous? Does it mean like the righteous go a certain way and oh, the Lord knows which way they went? Or does it mean, come here, I know the way. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. I know the way that leads to blessing and fruitfulness and prosperity. Which one is it? Well, when you look at this word and you break it down, I tried to do some word study on this one. It kind of means a little bit of both. God is saying, I know the way. I know the way that leads to blessing and fruitfulness and prosperity. I know the way of the righteous. Follow me in it. And he also sees which way we go. He sets before us a choice, and that choice is before us today. The way of the wicked or the way of the righteous. He says, I know the way that leads to blessing and fruitfulness and prosperity. Follow me, but he knows which way we go. So the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked are leading to two radically different places. The psalmist is pleading with you and I to walk in the way of the righteous. And we're past time. But if I end here, I, I may sentence you to a life of works. I may sentence you to a life of just trying harder in an attempt to earn righteousness. 
or to earn salvation. You may think, okay, 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 the, the way of the wicked is bad and leads to destruction. The way of the righteous, the righteous, those in right standing with God, that leads to blessing and fruitfulness and prosperity. And so if I just try harder to be righteous, if I just avoid the bad things and do the good things and read the Bible more, I'll be blessed and I'll be saved and I'll be fruitful and I'll be prosperous. If all we've said is don't walk in the way of the wicked, but walk in the way of the righteous, if I leave you there, I've preached a death sentence to you because you can't do it. And I can't do it on our own, can we? And that's how this song leads us to Jesus. What about Jesus? How does this song lead us there? I don't understand, okay? So this song tells us that only the righteous will survive the judgment. Only the righteous will be blessed and fruitful and prosperous. And perhaps you felt it this whole time. You felt the problem. And the problem is this. I'm not righteous. These are great promises for the righteous. But I'm not righteous. I'm not in right standing on my own. So those are beautiful promises for somebody else. I'm not righteous. And the Psalms agree. You're not righteous. I'm not righteous. Look at Psalm chapter 14, verse 3 in your notes. It says, they've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt, and there's none who does good, not even one. None of us in here are righteous on our own. We cannot be in right standing based on our merits. We can't do it. Psalm chapter 130, verses 3 and 4, look at this. Kind of gives us hope, gives us huge hope. If you, God, should mark our iniquities, if you were counting our sins, who could stand before you? The answer is obviously nobody. But with you, there is forgiveness so that you may be feared. In Psalm 32, verse 2, blessed, there's blessing again, blessed is the man who, the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Your spirit isn't lying to you. You're not saying, oh, I'm good how I am. I'm I'm righteous on my own. That's self-righteousness. You're not deceiving yourself. You're not deceived thinking that you can earn your way on your own and just live the, the, take the way of the righteous on your own and I'm just gonna do it. If I just try harder and avoid the bad way and take the good way and I'm just gonna do it. You're not deceiving yourself. In your spirit, there's no deceit. You're blessed, not because you can do it, but because blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And so the righteous in Psalm 1 are sinful people who are somehow forgiven and counted as righteous, even though they're not righteous in themselves. How? How can unrighteous people be forgiven and be called righteous? in right standing with God. And one of the most beautiful and brilliant, breathtaking verses in all of scripture is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And it tells us how. Now God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that what? So that in him, we might become what? The righteousness of God. Our sin and the wrath of God, justified wrath of God against that sin and unrighteousness was poured out on Jesus, was imputed to him. And it says his righteousness, his perfect standing, holiness and perfect purity was imputed to us. 
credited and accounted to us. So listen, there's no greater news than this. I don't know what other news you get, but there's no greater news than this. That's why the gospel is called good news, because this is the heart of the gospel, that the punishment we deserve was not poured out on us. It was poured out on Jesus Christ, and now those who are in him have been imputed the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And if that's true, if you are in Christ, if you have surrendered your life and said, I am a sinner, I have fallen short of the glory of God, and I can't do it on my own. I can't walk in the way of the righteous on my own. Lord, I need you. I'm a sinner. There's no deceit in me. I'm not deceiving myself. I know I'm jacked up. And I can't, and all my efforts, all of my attempts will fail and fall short. I can't do it, God. I need you, and I need your mercy, and I need your grace. I need your Holy Spirit to empower me. He says, your sins were poured out on my son, Jesus Christ, and his righteousness has been imputed to you. And so now you are the righteous. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are the righteous. And then every precious promise of Psalm 1 is yours. Blessing and fruitfulness and prosperity in Christ Jesus. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for your word that brings life. Lord, we have been laid low in our sin. There's no deceit in us, Lord. I pray that there would be no deceit in any single person here, that we would know that you are a holy and perfect God and that we, as Romans teaches us, have sinned and fallen short. Every one of us, there's no one righteous, no, not one. That we've all sinned and fallen short of your glory. So I pray that we wouldn't be deceiving ourselves here this morning. And if there's any deceit, I pray Lord, expose it to us. Expose the deceit in our own heart to us, Lord. Oh, by your grace and by your mercy, come in power and expose the lies in our heart to us so that we may repent before you, that we may confess our sin to you and trust in you. And as Paul said, that we may be found now with the righteousness that is not our own, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The most breathtaking news is that you made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And we worship you for that. So I pray that this morning would be a moment of absolute surrender for us. That we would lay down our lives and all of our attempts to earn salvation and earn righteousness and we would just drop that heavy load right now. Just roll it right off of our shoulders and cast it at your feet in faith, trusting that you've paid the price and you bore the weight of that sin so that we can be set absolutely free, washed whiter than snow and God that we would then pick up the precious promises of Psalm 1 that you desire for us blessing and fruitfulness and prosperity in Christ Jesus. Amen.